are currently working our way, as many of you know, through the book of 2 Corinthians in a series entitled Light of the Gospel, a book filled with some of the most famous verses in all of the Bible. Verses like, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Or therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Or for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or a verse that we've looked at more recently over the course of the last several weeks, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Those are just a, a few of the verses that we've encountered along the way as we've worked our way through this series. I've said it before and I'll say it again. The sequel is just as impressive as the original, not only because it expresses some of the deepest truths in all of the Bible, invoking worship and praise of this God that it reveals, but also because it's incredibly practical in speaking to our struggles with present uncertainty, which many of us should be feeling right now, our natural tendency to hide our weaknesses, which many of us are doing right now, and giving us a, a vision for what it means to live for Christ, to radically and generously spend and be spent for, for God's glory as we walk by faith, as Paul says, not by sight, hemmed in by this love of Jesus who, who, who loved us and, and gave himself for us. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up this morning to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. That's where we'll be. Um, and, and I would definitely encourage you, uh, if you do have a Bible, to um, keep it open in front of you this morning since we don't have sermon slides for you to kind of track with, with me. I think it'll be helpful because I'm gonna reference verses throughout and come back to verses along the way. Um, if you don't own a Bible, if you don't have a hard copy of the Bible, you can go to esv.org and you can pull up a copy of the translation that we'll be using this morning and you just kind of track with that. Let me, let me go ahead and pray for us so that we can jump in and get to work this morning. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you an incredibly desperate people this morning, asking you to do a great work in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you, would you overwhelm us with the, the inexpressible gift of your grace in Jesus Christ that we might be all the more filled with your fullness and might leverage our lives and our possessions in a way that all the more reflects the kingdom to which we truly belong. God, I invite you this morning to attend the preaching of your word in power. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as I've said in recent weeks, this follow-up letter to the church in, in Corinth, it's really a three-part letter. First part focuses on Paul's defense of his apostolic authority. That's chapters one through seven. Second part focuses on sacrificial generosity as an outworking of gospel formed repentance. That's chapters eight and nine. That's where we are right now. The third part focuses on Paul's call to the rebellious minority in Corinth to repent while they still have time, verses 10 through 13. So that if this were a Netflix series, this morning would mark the end of season two, the, the briefest of series, the final episode of that series. If you pick up in verse one of chapter nine, Paul says, now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, 
For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, Corinth being the capital of Achaia. And your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, verse four, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. These verses are, are something of a continuation of what Paul began to say back at the, the beginning of chapter eight, where he directed his attention to the matter of the collection for the impoverished saints in Jerusalem, something that Paul had originally brought before the Corinthian church a year prior to the writing of this very letter that we sit in right now. So that if you go back to the prequel, 1 Corinthians 16 verses one through four, Paul says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Church in Jerusalem, we read in in Historical records in the scriptures tell us as well, it was a, a place of great financial struggle made up of predominantly con- converted Jews so that as Paul looked out on several of these predominantly Gentile churches that he had planted, he saw an opportunity to care for this church in a way that would have undoubtedly gone a long way in putting unity and love on display for, for the watching world. The church in Corinth had had already received her charge from the apostle Paul to respond generously to this need, but a lot had happened since that original call to action. If you remember, if you were around for the early part of this series, a fallout had occurred between the apostle Paul and many in the church in Corinth over the span of roughly a year so that any thoughts of concern for those in Jerusalem were likely pushed to the peripheral edges of the minds of those brothers and sisters in Corinth so that Paul reminds them in light of his newfound confidence in in them, going back to the end of chapter seven of the Jerusalem church's need, inviting them to respond uh, willingly and generously. Paul tells us verse two, that he even went so far as to brag on the church in Corinth to the saints in Macedonia, which led those Macedonian brothers and sisters to, to give out of their abundance of poverty, going back to the beginning of chapter eight as they begged earnestly to participate in giving to the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. Imagine if those impoverished Macedonian brothers and sisters had accompanied Paul to Corinth, verse four, only to find a community of more financially prosperous Christians, Peachtree City, unwilling to fulfill their promise. I mean, we're talking about humiliation, both for the apostle Paul and the church in Corinth as well as a a disrepute brought upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul calls them to make good on what they said that they would do in giving to the need of the Jerusalem church, not as an exaction, verse five, not as a demand born out of some sort of easily accessible motivator of guilt or shame as the church loves to do present day, but rather as a willing gift born out of the riches of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Again, that famous verse that we've gone to several times in the last 
couple weeks, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. If you're a Christian, saved from wrath, declared righteous before God, cleansed from sin, freed from chains, reconciled to our maker, forever blessed, children of the living God, heaven and heaven's king, our, our inheritance. And none of it, as Paul says elsewhere, is of our own doing, but rather God's doing. It's the gift of God, Ephesians 2, 7, the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I said this several weeks back, you need to know according to the scriptures that you're, you're forsaking the greatest riches in all of the universe, including the great treasure of the triune God himself. So that the first thing I would do this morning is to implore you, if you're not a Christian, to turn to Jesus, to put your faith, your trust in Jesus, who lived the, the sinless life of, of obedience that none of us could live, who died the criminal's death that we as sinners deserve to die. The one who took all of our debt upon himself so that we might be forgiven. I invite you to cry out to him as savior this morning, to cry out to him as king, as Lord, to join the many heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, as Paul says elsewhere in scripture, as a recipient of God's grace. The kind of grace that Paul believes has the power to make hearts full, spilling over into willing, sacrificial generosity for the glory of this savior and king whom we profess to follow and love and the good of those made in his image, which Paul goes on to, to drive at using language that's not incredibly familiar to us. And, and yet we, we may understand something enough of it that we can get our minds around it. He, he uses agrarian imagery as he moves into verse six, something that we have already seen him do back in chapter six, where he talked about unequal yoking. Remember that, that picture of an ox and a donkey hitched to the same plow? He says, if you continue to track verses six through 11, Paul says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, verse nine, he has distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched, Paul says, in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. It's this picture of a farmer not stingily dropping one seed into the ground at a time so as not to lose one, but rather liberally scattering seeds throughout the field. That, that's what Paul expects the gospel to produce in us. Not, not a people who are stingy with the blessings that God has bestowed upon them, but who liberally scatter gifts to those in need. Those who, verse nine, distribute freely, right? No, no farmer would miserly plant seeds in a field and then look out on that field in anticipation of a bountiful harvest. That's a fool's errand. 
Similarly, what Paul's saying here is that no Christians should be sparingly benevolent and then look out on the field of his or her life in anticipation of some bountiful harvest of blessing to come. Now, here's the danger. Here's where the prosperity gospel wants to hijack the economy of God so that some would preach that we give in order that God would fill our pockets with silver and gold. I mean, after all, Paul says, sow bountifully, reap bountifully. But that kind of thinking simply doesn't jive with what Paul is actually saying and has already said in this very book of the Bible, this very letter. For one, he's already declared that the saints in Corinth might experience a lean season even after having financially given to the needs of those in Jerusalem. If you look back in your Bible to uh, chapter eight, verse 14, Paul says to the church in Corinth, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, the need of the Jerusalem church, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. You see what Paul's doing here? He's inviting the saints in Corinth to give, knowing that there may come a day in which they experience a poverty of their own. That doesn't sound like the prosperity gospel, does it? In addition, notice how Paul views financial increase. The generous sower whom God rewards with more money and more resources. It's not so that the sower might swim more deeply in the idolatrous waters of comfort and convenience, but but so that the sower might liberally scatter seeds of generosity all over again. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. That financial return on investments of sacrificial generosity for the sake of God's kingdom and God's people and the sake of the world around us, those are God's way of saying, I trust you to scatter generously yet again. You've proven yourself to be generous before. That doesn't sound like the prosperity gospel either. In addition, notice that the bulk of the harvest language is not about financial prosperity at all, but rather about reaping bountifully and bearing fruit for God's kingdom. Verse 10, a harvest of righteousness. Verse eight, abounding in every good work. Verse nine, an enduring harvest of righteousness. It's an invitation to participate not in the building of the kingdom of self, but rather the building of the kingdom of God. So that in some sense, Paul is inviting us to to check our hearts, to ask which of those two kingdoms we're truly living for. And notice that, that it's, It's not just those with certain means that are invited to participate. We're all invited into this beautiful outworking of God's grace, which is why Paul says, verse seven, each one. It's not just for those in a certain tax bracket or those with a certain level of Christian maturity. It's for each and every one of us. And not begrudgingly or under compulsion, Paul says, but willingly and cheerfully as an outworking of God's abounding grace. God loves a cheerful giver, Paul says. That language hearkening back to the the Old Testament practice of the year of canceling debts, so that if you read Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses nine through 11, tell us, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. 
and he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. That what was once a practice of of giving cheerfully every seven years, it's now a daily practice for God's people in light of the outpouring of his grace in Jesus Christ. God loves a cheerful giver. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, we are not to be like the young grape that must be pressed and squeezed to get the juice out because it is not ripe. Rather, we ought to be like the honeycomb dripping spontaneously with fresh honey. A cheerful giver always wishes he could give 10 times as much. A cheerful doer always wants to have more capacity for doing. God loves this cheerfulness, he says, this hardiness, this wholeheartedness, this intenseness, this fire of the soul, right? We, we already know that, that God loves us. We need look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ for evidence, amen? The Christian cheerfully and willingly gives not in the pursuit of acceptance, but from the position of acceptance that's already his or hers in Jesus He used Spurgeon's words, a gospel formed fire of the soul overflowing in cheerful generosity, which according to God's word, this morning's passage leads to an enrichment of our lives by the Holy Spirit and a deeper sense of the love of God and in bearing fruit for God's eternal kingdom. His grace multiplied in our lives as we show grace to others around us. Paul closes out this morning's passage with these words, verses 12 through 15. He says, For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God, the saints in Jerusalem, because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, exclamation point. Obedience, Paul argues, it's the expression of our faith. James has an entire dissertation on that, his self-authored book of the Bible. Or as Paul says it, verse 13 Submission is an expression of our confession, our confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's inexpressible gift, verse 15. The, the word, this was new to me. I learned this this week. The word inexpressible in verse 15, this is the first time it shows up in the history of the Greek language. Classical Greek, Koine Greek, biblical Greek, you won't find it before you find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15 similar to the word excruciating. There there was no word to describe the pain of crucifixion in the days when crucifixion was real, so a word was made up, excruciating. Cruci, crucifixion, that word literally means out of the cross. Similarly, the apostle Paul couldn't find a word that already existed to describe the gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ, so he made one up. 
The word translated in many of our Bibles as inexpressible. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible, can't put it into words, gift. This is what I imagine the Apostle Paul had to have been wrapped up in as he recorded Ephesians chapter three, verses 16 through 19, where he says, it's one of the great benedictions of scripture. He says, may God grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. A love wide enough to embrace the world, a love long enough to span the scope of eternity, a love deep enough to get underneath your deepest sin and a love high enough to, to raise you up with Christ and seat you with him in the heavenly places. Paul wants us to, to wrap our minds around the comprehensive nature of the love of God, which our minds are absolutely incapable of doing. That's a really tough homework assignment. The inexpressible gift of the immeasurable riches of his grace in Christ Jesus, yet it's that absolutely impossible exercise that Paul says fills God's people with God's fullness and causes them to burst forth like a honeycomb in praise. Cheerful doxology to borrow Paul's adjective from verse seven. The, the kind of doxology that leads to liberal seed scattering for the glory of God and the good of other people. Make no mistake, our, our participation in his kingdom work is for his glory alone. He, verse eight, he's the one who's able to make all grace abound to us. He, verse 10, he's the one who multiplies our seed for sowing and increases the harvest of our righteousness, which is why he's the one worthy of thanksgiving, a word that's used in verses 11, 12, and 15, just to make sure we don't miss the point. He's the one worthy of glory. Verse 13, that apart from God's grace, we're all sunken ships. But by God's grace, not only are we welcomed participants in the building of his good kingdom, but we're sons and daughters. We're citizens and saints. I invite you this morning, church, to to ruminate in the deep, deep love of Jesus, God's inexpressible gift, that you might be filled with the fullness of God and counted among the liberal scatterers of the seeds of generosity for his glory in the days, weeks, months, and years to come of your life, as long as he allows you to keep breathing and participate in the building of his good kingdom.